We just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this psalm and help us to see what you would have us to see from it all. In your son's precious name, amen. amen. All right, Psalm 136, round two. <laughs> all right, let's read the whole psalm again. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord of... The God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. O oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule the day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule the night, for his mercy endures forever. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and a stretched out arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endures forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him that led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him that smote great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land for a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. Even a heritage unto Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our low estate, for his mercy endures forever. And hath redeemed us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to, the, to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, O heaven, for his mercy endures forever. All right. So as we started with this one. Yeah, but we only made it through three verses. That's why I said it's 136 well, round see, two. So Psalm 136 <laughs> round two. <laughs> yeah, we made it through three verses and I cut 20 or 30 minutes of conversation out of the, out of the lesson last week because we got way off track. It was a good lesson, it was a good time, but it was way off track. So we're going to continue here. We're going to start at verse 4. And as we said last week, this is a history lesson in song. And many of the Psalms were history lessons. They sang the history of Israel in their worship time and helped people be reminded of what God has done for his people. So here we start out. In verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders or miracles or activities or things that are difficult to understand. You know, I think about this a little bit. How often does God do things that we have a hard time understanding in the first place? You know, and you know, all the time, you know, uh, miracles, uh, the the movie, Do You Believe That I Was Watching, starts bringing all these stories together, and the world looks at it and says, well, those things don't happen. They happen all the time that God will bring things together. He will provide a Christian you know, with just the finances they need at the last moment to pay their bills, to, to accomplish whatever it is he's asking them to do. Uh, churches oftentimes get their money at the last moment for big visions. It's an amazing thing to watch God do the miraculous in our lives 
and accomplish things. And yet the world will say, well, it was just a coincidence or you know, it's, just, you know, it's kind of interesting the way you know, your, your, your life is working out, old Christian person, you know, that everything just seems to work together for you. And we see this oftentimes. This is what the world will say. You know, we give credit to God and they're going, well, it was just coincidence. <laughs> you know, God does great miracles. And it is fun to watch God do great things. When, when somebody gets saved and just the right combination of things happen to bring them to God. When all things work together for good and we look back over our life and say, wow, God, you really knew what you were doing. You know, when we challenge God with our words and he says, okay, let me teach you <laughs> some things because of what you're saying and show you that you may want to be eating those words or you're going to be challenged by those words. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in verse 5, to him that by wisdom made the heavens. You know, understanding. God created this world with full understanding on it. And we as humans are just beginning to start to understand what God created from, in wisdom from the very beginning. It's an amazing thing when you study science and you see how everything interlocks in science. And they want to tell us it all happened by random chance. There's no thought, no processes behind it. And yet, everything about this world is totally interlocked. You know, uh, when God met with Job, he says, do you understand how the water flows into the ocean and yet the oceans aren't filled? And Job says, no, I don't. You know, God's saying, you know, I'm the one that sends it back up to the sky through evaporation. He's the one that planned that. The nitrogen cycle where things, where nitrogen is used to recreate the plants and then it goes back as things die into the ground to replenish the nitrogen. You know, every bit of what goes on, our meteorologists are beginning to start to understand weather in, in strong ways, but yet they still don't understand why each little piece of it completely works. And yet God says, to me, it's simple. We read, we read a, a psalm a couple you know, weeks ago about how God, or no, in Job, he says, do you understand where the snow was stored up for the cold? Do you understand where the, the hail is stored, stored up? Do you understand where all these things are and, and how they all flow together? And even in today's world, we don't understand completely why all these things can happen, and yet we're beginning to start understanding. We don't, you know, and it's an amazing thing in science is the, the deeper you look into the cell, the more amazing it is that it operates at all. You know, and the scientists that believe in evolution want to tell us, oh, it's all random. Okay, you can't even split the, the, the cell without the little microbiological machines to split the cell and put it back together with the, tearing the DNA apart and putting it back into RNA and putting them back together. You have machines to do that. Okay, did you need the machine first or did you need the, RNA, the DNA? You, know, you needed both at the same moment. To feed, the, to feed our cells, there's an enzyme that unlocks the cell wall so that the food can get in. Which one came first, the, the cell wall that needed the lock or the enzyme that, that unlocked the cell? And without either one of them, you, the other one's worthless. You know, all the detail, when we look deep down into this, and we're going, wow, this is amazing. 
The very fact of an atom is mostly empty space, and yet we have what we say is solid stuff. And yet, in reality, the, tables, the table in front of us, the chairs we're sitting on, are empty space, you know, when we really look at it. And it's an amazing thing that God puts a cohesion on it to make things solid. Then you look out into outer space, and the further we look, the more we see his glory. The wonders of God and the understanding that he put everything together with. The very fact that this world spins at just the right speed to, for life to be on it, that it's just the right distance from the sun, the moon is just the right distance to cause us some, some, some things. You know, There's just enough oxygen in the air to not explode, but yet, yet we can breathe. Because if it was just a little bit more oxygen, the first flame would ignite the atmosphere completely, and any less, we wouldn't survive. You know, all the things that God put into effect. The very fact that water violates all the rules of freezing so that we could have life in the, in the waters. You know, most things freeze from the bottom to the top. Water freezes from the top down and expands completely so that it doesn't, that it floats. It's an amazing thing. Water has thrown people, ice has thrown scientists in a crazy for a long time because if it froze like everything else, there wouldn't be any fish in the sea when it, in the waters when it froze. And yet, God has a plan for it. You know, God put great wisdom in it. And the more you look at science, the more you have to believe that there's a God because it, it's so fully integrated. It cannot have happened by, by accident. And yet, these scientists will tell us, you know, even though it looks like it's got an organization and it's planned, just remember that it's not planned. And they'll say that very same thing in an evolution class. They'll go, we know it looks like it's got an intelligent plan behind it, but just remember that it's all by accident. Okay? Forget what you see, believe what we say. It's ridiculous what they teach. And our students buy into it hook, line, and sinker because smart people are telling them that this is true. And then it says, to him that stretched out the earth above the waters. Now this one is very interesting because in Genesis, it tells us that he gathered the waters together and land was on top of the waters. When the flood of Noah came, came he said he broke up the foundations of the earth and the fountains from below came up. And here it's a, in Psalm it's a saying the same thing. God put water underneath the ground when he first started. Now whether we're still in that place, I don't think so because we have pretty solid ground since the flood and the breaking up of the earth. We do believe that the world was a Pangea, one large continent in the beginning. And it, that would make sense because so the scriptures seem to indicate that he gathered the land in one mass. And then during the Noetic deluge, he broke the earth and shifted, and shifted them into motion. And, you know, but there it says, another one of those things where he, the land was on top of the water. And I don't know how that would work. <laughs> that's, between, that's for God to figure out. Because when God in the Genesis said there was water below and water above, and there was some form of cloud heavy cloud cover and or literal water. I believe it was heavy water co uh, cloud cover myself. 
because that would be water, because clouds are water. And uh, that was the way he divided the earth, heaven, and, and water, because it's what he said he did. And I take him literal. And I believe it was probably a heavy cloud cover, similar to what we have on, on the planet Venus. It's just covered by clouds not of water, but thick clouds. Other than the fact that it, was, it would have been a very violent breaking up and God put it in motion faster, because uh, we know that it, as everything follows the laws of thermodynamics, everything slows down. Then you wonder what happened, you know, when uh, the flood did came, come. It's not only the flood, but the upheaval. The upheavals and the violence of it, God. The, the initial f moving of the continents, I believe, was extremely fast. Yeah. Extremely fast. Because yeah. God caused great violence. And the same thing for our Earth. Our Earth is slowing down. The Earth is slowing down. The speed around the sun is slowing down. Everything about our world is slowing down, which is a direct fulfillment of the laws of thermodynamics. Everything tends toward entropy, and it's just like a top. When you spin a top, it, it'll spin really fast for quite a while, and then when it starts slowing down, it wobbles and stuff, and our Earth is wobbling. The axis of our wor world is wobbling. It was about every century that it would change, and now we're down to about every 10 years there's a major shift of four to five degrees in, our, in the axis of the world. It is slowing down. Now, we still have a long time before we will topple even the natural, natural rules, but God set everything in motion. And it's fun to watch everything going, you know, that's happening because it goes, when we read the scriptures, it says God put everything in motion, and now we see everything starting to slow down and, and go, it's like, wow, you know what, God, you did just what you said. You did just what you said. And there's another scripture, and I don't remember where it's at, but he says that the world will totter like a drunken man. And yet we're seeing just that happen as it spins, you know, as it's slowing down and starts to, to, to move back and forth. And in Revelation, it tells us there's going to be an earthquake of such violence that the hills will collapse. And you can picture that, the world slowing down, have a major shift on our axis, you'd have a big earthquake. Because every shift of the earth has an earthquake associated with it. And the scientists will say the earthquake caused the axis. I think the axis is causing the earthquake. But either, either way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter which one causes the other one. It's causing big earthquakes. It's part of the, in the tribulation period that all the hills will, will collapse, which will go back to more of what we've had in the past. And uh, so we see these things going on. And then he says he made the great lights in verse 7. Yeah. He made great lights, basically the sun <laughs> and the moon. And it says, the sun to rule the day and the moon and stars to rule the night. Just, we're, we're having, right now we're having a re replay of Genesis. He created the, the lights, the sun, moon, and stars. And the sun to rule the day and the stars, he said, were to be signs and wonders in the heaven, the signs and wonders to be in the heaven. And you know, we've talked about this. I love the fact that God put the stars in their place he put the constellations in their place, and I fully believe this. He put the constellations in his place. He told man what the constellations were, and he put the gospel story within the very stars of the heaven.
All right? It starts with Virgo, the Virgin, goes through the various constellations all the way through to Leo the Lion and the ruler of the heavens and has so many pictures of God involved through this. You know, we've got Orion with his foot over the serpent that's ready to strike his heel as he's getting ready to crush the serpent's head right in the stars. <laughs> okay, we have the mighty hunter ready to kill and slay another hydra. You know, we've got all these stories within the heavens where God says, I'm going to show man the gospel from the very earliest days. Now, does it have Jesus' name in there? No, but we see him. We see him all through the constellations, and we watch the story and the grace of God being shown through the, through the uh, constellations. It's a powerful thing, and God says, I put those there. You know, I put those there. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> then he gets into a little more current history for them. He says, to him that smote Egypt in their firstborn. So he's reminding them, God delivered you, and he did it by killing the firstborn of Egypt. And this was firstborn male, whether it was human or animal. He killed anything that wasn't inside a house covered by the blood of, blood of the Passover lamb. And again, we've talked about this at various times. The, the blood of the Passover lamb was put on the top of the door, the two sides, and on the bottom, which forms the cross that Jesus died. His blood from his head from the thorns, his blood from his hands on the doorside, and blood from his feet at the base. We have a picture of the cross protecting the families within those houses, which is just what we have today. Jesus Christ is our protection from death, and, and he protects us through that cross. And brought out Israel from among them. So God gave them the protection of by killing the firstborn, then he brought Egypt, brought the Israelites out of bondage of Egypt. He goes on, he brought them out of Israel, uh, Israel out from among them. Verse 12, with a strong hand and a stretched out arm for his mercy endures forever. He brought them out. And, it goes, and this is referring to the ten plagues on, on Egypt and how God destroyed all the gods of Egypt. And we've talked about that. You know, the, the ten plagues on Egypt was a battle of the gods in, for all practical purposes. Now, we know there's only one god, but the Egyptians thought there were many gods. So God says, I'm going to show you your gods are nothing. I'm going to dismantle every one of them. And when we went through the, when we went through the different uh, plagues, we would talk about this plague should have been able to, you know, this uh, was an attack in this god, this god, this god, and this god. And this plague was an attack on this God, this God, and this God. And basically, God's going to show in the Egyptians, you think you have some gods, let me just show you that I'm stronger than all of them. And the book of Judges was that same deal where God, uh, excuse me, Joshua was the same thing, where God's going in and saying, well, you think you've got a God? You know, there's one place where they said, you know, well, he, their God defeated the gods of the mountains, you know, but our gods are the gods of the valley. He can't defeat us. And, you know, it's kind of an amazing thought, you know, but in their defense, they believed in their gods. You know, they believed in their gods and they put faith in their gods. And God's been constantly showing them, I'm the stronger, the stronger one. You have Elisha on Mount Carmel saying, 
you know, okay, you 400 prophets, you go pray to your God, and whoever will send fire down from heaven is the God we're going to worship. And he lets them yell and scream and holler and cut themselves and do everything but put fire on the wood. <laughs> and, you know, and I, and I love it because he was teasing them, you know, yell a little louder, maybe he's asleep, did he go on vacation, maybe he's in the bathroom. Uh, you know, he was pretty harsh on these guys. He just gets up at the time of the evening prayer and says a very simple prayer. God, show them that you're God. And, and that was after he had it doused with water to prove that there's no fire there in the first place. And then God drops fire from heaven that consumes the, the, the wood, the, the offering, and the stones. That's a lot of heat. Okay, Stones usually hold up very well to heat. And you've got to picture how much heat God put down on that flame. You know, they were taken and disintegrated as well. That's a lot of heat. And it didn't destroy everybody around it, which is even more amazing that God kept that heat just on the rocks. Because that much heat should have been like a blast furnace to everybody anywhere near. You know, all around the mountain should have been pretty much singed. And God kept that very focused on their heat. And he says... I've done it with a strong arm. I took you out. Then he says, I divided the Red Sea into parts. You know, I've always wondered what that would have been like, to have the Red Sea literally split and opened up. And even in the shallowest part of the Red Sea, we're talking a wall of several hundred feet that you're walking between. There's some faith just walking between those walls of water. And it says he, they walked on dry land, which is a miracle in and of itself. He says, I divided the Red Sea for you. What faith did they have to walk through? Now, they didn't really have much choice. <laughs> the Egyptians are right behind them. It was either go through there or get killed by the Egyptians. But still, to be able to walk through however wide it was, I don't know how wide it was. The entire three and a half million people walked through in one night, so it had to be pretty wide that God opened up for them because it wouldn't have been a narrow way. You wouldn't have been able to get very many people through. You'd have had to have a, you know, well, the equivalent of an eight or ten lane highway going through there to get that many people through that quick. So it would be a huge gap. And I'm sure some people stayed close to the center <laughs> center of it, get as far from the walls as possible, walls of water that can't be there in the first place, and yet there they are. You know, what a miracle that would have been to see. What a miracle that it was to see, and God says, I did this for you. And this miracle is remembered all the way through, all the way through, their, even their conquest times, people are going, these are the people that their God took them through the sea. Okay, not over the sea, not around the sea, through the sea on dry land. And this would be something that people were talking about for probably generations to come. And because we remember when the children of Israel entered the promised land, Rahab was already telling them, we remember what your God did to Egypt. We remember the Red Sea. You know, all our people are scared, scared to death of you guys because of your, the power of your God. You dismantled Egypt, who was the power in that day. He took you through the Red Sea and then killed all of the Egyptians 
and now you're at our door and you've killed, you've been victorious in every place you are. We are terrified of your God. And that's what she said. And we see this over and over again. We as Christians are so often afraid to go to the world and yet the world is so often afraid of what Christianity can and has done over the years and yet we are terrified sometimes by the world. You know, uh, the spies, when they came to them, said, you know, we, there are giants in the land, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And that's how they see us. They've added motive to the, to the giants. You know, we see ourselves as grasshoppers, so therefore they see us as grasshoppers. And meanwhile, the people are going, shaking in their boots, because here's a, here's a people that their God has destroyed Egypt. And they're afraid to death of stepping in to, to deal with the people who are afraid of them. We've got to be so careful about this. We do this frequently as Christians. I'm afraid to speak for God because something might happen from the world. Where is our trust? I was watching the movie, Do You Believe? And this one guy is going to trial because of his giving a testimony to somebody who's dying and leading them to Christ. Now, I don't know how it ended because I haven't seen the end of the movie, but you know, he says, I'm willing to stand for God. His cross was the possibility of losing his job and losing his income. For many Christians, that's enough to stop a lot of Christians from doing anything for God. God, if I speak for you, somebody might take my job away from me. I don't know about you, but my, but my Bible says my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches. <laughs> now that doesn't mean we go stupidly out there and do things, but you know, stand for God and God rewards. Reject him <laughs> and he'll say, okay, fine. You want to reject me? You lose your job anyway. <laughs> he also rewards you. Huh? The reward is not, not the same. You always get a reward. Well, you always get a consequence. Yeah. A reward or a punishment, one or the other. Both are consequences. I mean, there's still be a consequence even if you went with your word. There's still a and, and we're seeing this happen in our day in America where we've got businesses who are standing up for God and then they lose their business. You know. No, because too many Christians have compromised. They don't see God's power anymore. They don't see God's power anymore. Because Christians have compromised so much, so often, that there's nothing for them to be afraid of. You know, we were talking about this earlier. How many martyrs gave their life, and because of the steadfastness of their testimony, people responded to that, that uh, martyrdom? Most Christians in our day and age are wimps. So afraid of suffering for God. So afraid of a little suffering. And if they'd actually looked at it as suffering for God, they'd be better off. Because, okay, God, I'm willing to give all for you. What are we willing to sacrifice for God? That's a big question for us to consider. God, what would I give up for you? We are pilgrims on this earth. This is not our home. 
If we spent our entire life in misery and pain for Christ, not just in misery and pain, but for Christ, what would that be compared to eternity in, in heaven? Paul says that, said that he gives thanks for the light affliction in this world. Okay, Paul's definition of light infliction was, I've been beat up, I've been chased out of town, I've been almost killed, I've been shipwrecked, I've been bit by, bit by snakes, uh, all these things. And he goes, those are light afflictions. And he probably was dead. Now, this is what he defines as light afflictions. And most of us, as Christians, won't stand up and say, okay, God, whatever. Whatever you send my way, I'm going to take. Job probably had the same opinion as, as Paul did. I've suffered these light afflictions for God. Not in the middle of it did he accept it as light afflictions, but when God rewarded him for his steadfastness, he would have looked back and said, oh, temporary light afflictions. We need to get to this point where we have this attitude. God, whatever comes my way is a temporary light affliction. Because what is anything we go through in this world compared to eternity? 20 trillion years from now, we're going to look back and say, oh man, earth was so bad. We're probably going to go, I don't even remember earth. <laughs> you know, yeah, that was a, a, a little tiny flick where, where I had to make a decision for you, God. You know, but man, the blessings have been so great. We've got to put it in perspective. You know, 20 trillion, 20 gazillion, you know, whatever, you know, 20 Googleplex, you know, whatever number you want to use into the future, we won't even be thinking about anything that went on in this earth at all. Oh, yeah, that was when God tested me to see if I was going to choose him. Boy, it, it was just a nanosecond's worth of time. You know, just, just a flicking, just a little snap of the finger and it was over with. And yet while we're living in it, we think it's everything. We think it's everything. I love so much the answer for the apostles when they suffered for Christ. And their answer was, thank God he found us worthy of suffering for him. We need to look at this. When we are facing any suffering, our attitude must be, thank you, God, that you find me worthy of suffering. You, you found me to be like Job, worthy of the suffering to lift your name up. And then eternity rewards that attitude. Eternity rewards that. All right, verse 15, and he overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. And remember that Pharaoh's chariots went into the Red Sea and they did not come out. And apparently Pharaoh did not go in. He was the usual commander. Go follow them. He didn't have enough courage to go into the Red Sea with his army. And his army was destroyed because God collapsed 200, 300, 400 feet walls of water upon the chariots. They didn't stand a chance to survive. Even if they had been good swimmers, they wouldn't have stood a chance with that much water collapsing on them. Pride will drive us to do really stupid things. And Pharaoh did a lot of stuff because of his pride. And Pharaoh saw himself as God. Pride has been a problem since the beginning. Pride is what drove Satan out of heaven. Uh, 
Pride is the chief weapon that he uses to tempt human beings to do crazy things. God hates pride. He said pride goes before the fall. And, and if you're going to be a proud person, you're going to fall flat because God's not going to allow you to stand on your own feet in front of him in this life or in the afterlife. He says every knee will bow and we have a choice. We can bow in this lifetime voluntarily or we will be made to bow before him in the white throne judgment. But every knee will bow, including Satan's. Satan will bow as well with every creature that has been created will bow before God before they're cast into hell. God will make them bow. And we see this pride led Pharaoh to go into the Red you know, send his army into the Red Sea. And this should have, really, I, the way I look at it, God has destroyed my nation, <laughs> been victorious everywhere, and I'm going to send my army in to chase these people through the Red Sea, you know, through the sea. I don't, I couldn't see doing it. But then again, I think differently than he does, did. Was he emotionally blind to see that this, they're going through on dry land, my people will too, and not see that God? We don't know what was going in in his mind. But pride would make him say, you know, my son's been killed, my country's been destroyed, I am going to make these people pay. There's a lot of revenge, a lot of pride in there. You know, my son is now dead. You know, my son is dead, and I'm going to make these people pay. You know, his first response was, get him out of here, which his people had been telling him to get, get him out of there from the eighth plague. The people were saying, get these people out. They're, they're causing us ruin. By the tenth plague, when his son was died, it was like, get out of here in his grief. And then after he had a moment to think, you, you know, it's, these guys have caused me great pain. I'm going to go make them pay. And at that point, he was willing to do anything. It might have been that he hadn't forgotten at all. It was just, these people are going to pay for all, my, all the pain that's been inflicted on my land. And we don't know exactly what it was that drove him to do this, but we, we can picture a lot of what was going on. Well, we look at it when somebody loses a child to a violent uh, event, they really want revenge more often than not. And they will sometimes do some things that are really stupid in the process of trying to get re, you know, revenge for their grief, their anger, whatever it is, they will you know, do a lot of dumb things, you know, including kill the person who did it and end up going to prison themselves. But this is where Pharaoh's at in this, in this story. Verse 16, to him that led his people through the wilderness, and that was going to be for 40 years as it came out, you know, started out with just a year, and then 40 years later, they come into the promised land because they refused to go into the promised land. They wandered for 40 years and God protected them for all those 40 years. They spent a year, they put a year in Sinai. They ended up going, trying to enter into the promised land. The spies came back with the evil report that people rejected and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, most people forget that they spent over a year at Sinai blessed them during that period of time, was trying to teach them to be his people, and then they still refused him when it was time to go into the promised land. And so he says, fine, we'll wander around the wilderness. I'll feed you, I'll water you, I'll, I'll, your clothes aren't going to wear out, your shoes aren't going to wear out, and I'm going to give you the food, and you're going to be kept strong, and I'm going to give you victories. But they still wandered in the wilderness for that 40 years. 
And it says, he kept them during that time. And then it says, to him that smote great kings, as they were getting ready to come into the promised land, he started letting them have victory over strong, powerful kings. And these are kings that we don't usually read about, but he starts out with Sihon, king of the Amorites. And they totally annihilate him. The Amorites were a very powerful people during that day. And then Og, the king of Bashan, in verse 20. And remember, we just got done covering them in, in Deuteronomy. Joshua repeats them again. You know, these are names that when you see these, Sihon and Og, they were strong kings. Now, we don't really associate them with much in history, but in their day, they were very powerful kings. They, they had sway over large portions of land. The entire eastern side of the Jordan, where the two and a half tribes are going to reside in very large territories, belong to these two kings. Okay, That's a lot of land. You, you weren't a weak king and had that much land. And God defeated these two kings, or allowed Israel to defeat them, but it was God who defeated them in the long run. Because you're facing strong, disciplined armies with a bunch of ragtag wanderers in the wilderness who are just learning to fight. And God used these as tune-up wars for them to get ready for going into the promised land. Let's teach you how to be warriors, how to fight. And they've had several fights before this, but this is the first time they come against a really strong enemy. And God defeats those enemies. And he says, and these were songs that keep being up there. You, God, you delivered us from Sihon and from Og. And then it says, and he gave their land for an heritage. And again, we just mentioned the two and a half tribes inherit those lands. And their reason they wanted to be in those, does anybody remember the reason they wanted to be in, the, in, the, in, the, in that area? They said, this is perfect land for all our oxen and our cattle. It's pastoral land, lots of grass, lots of food for all of our herds. We like it over here. We, we want to stay in the wilderness instead of going into the promised land. How many Christians do the same thing in our life? We'll spend our entire time in the wilderness rather than going into the victorious living and the spirit-filled life. And we see it over and over again. God, I just like it out here. I kind of know what this is like. Yes, it's dry. Yes, I'm thirsty. I only have just so much food. But, you know, and it's only very plain manna and water. But God, I know this, and this is what I want to stay on. And God's saying, I've got all kinds of blessings over here for you. You can eat the apples and the grapes and the melons and the honey and, and all these other things. And you want to stay out here. Yes, the manna is good. You want to stay out here with the manna and the water and not go into the prosperity of the spirit-filled life. And many times we will sit there and we'll suffer through hardships and trials for the rest of our life because we kind of understand that world. And we're afraid of the blessings that God's got for us. You know, picture I've, I heard on one, one of the movies actually was, you're like the little girl playing in the mud, mud puddle, making mud pies instead of going to Disneyland. Okay, You're having so much fun that you skip out on what would have been more fun. We do this frequently in our Christian walk. We get so wrapped up in, in what is fun, what is good, what is... And we leave out the best. And Satan 
has this as his goal for us as Christians, if he can't stop us from being a Christian, which is his ultimate goal, he says, let me try to keep you in the good. Let you just live in the good and keep you from the best. And sometimes we'll get wrapped up in so many things that are good, and we're so busy doing the good that we won't walk into the best. And this is something we've got to be able to look at. God, what is it you want me doing? What is the best? What is the thing you really want me doing, God, rather than all these good things that are a bunch of activities? And I'm not saying it's wrong. You know, the good is not necessarily wrong. It's just, you know, go back to the story. You're playing in the mud, in the mud and, you know, uh, and you had this trip all planned to go to Disneyland, and you're going, I'm just having too much fun. Just leave me here. I'm having lots of fun playing in the mud. And it's like, you missed out on a great, you're missing out on a great opportunity. We need to be careful and say, God, what is it you want? Our goal needs to always be, God, what is it you want me to do? Sometimes that's scary. It's kind of scary to go do what he wants. Let's go back to our picture of the guy play, you know, playing in the mud instead of going to Disneyland. You, you've got to stop playing in the mud, get cleaned up, get into a car, which is boring, and might finally end up at Disneyland. Now, once you get to Disneyland, you're going to forget all about the mud and the, and the trip and all of that. But can you see how this can be a traumatic experience for the person having fun in the mud? I'm having fun. You're making me get cleaned up. You're going to put me in a car for how long? You know, and we do that with God oftentimes. God, I'm having lots of fun here. You want me to clean up and go get in a car and you know, go through hard times for, for a period of time so that you can take me to what's best? That's our attitude with him most of the time. You know, and we want to you know, be looking at how he gives us blessing and how resistant we are to those blessings sometimes. And God's saying, I've got a plan for you. you know, have you ever given up something that's very important to you to get the, and God rewards you with something so much better than what you gave up? And you sit down and you go, oh, wow, I am so glad I gave that thing up. It doesn't seem like it when you give it up, <laughs> but the reward later on is well worth it. Even if it's headaches and heartaches to get there. The reward on the other side is so much better than anything you ever give up for God. Our definition of blessings is different. Oh, very different than God's definition of blessings. And that's why we're okay with something. Well, we're okay with having less than the best because we think we're being blessed in that less than the best. And then when we finally give it up and God gives us the best, and we go, wow, why was I ever satisfied with that? other area of my life that didn't, didn't fulfill. So that, to fall back on the prodigal son, mm -hmm. that's where it's kind of... You don't have, to go through the, don't have to go through the prodigal son experience, but oftentimes the trip between what we're doing that is good to, to get to the best can feel pretty hard sometimes. You know, it can be difficult. But we get there and you look back and say, wow, I am so glad I gave up what I gave up. And this is so important for us to understand. God has a plan for us that he knows what is best and what is good, and he knows the pain sometimes it takes to get there, but he knows the other side. 
He knows the other side of the issue and says, you want to go through this valley to get over to the, to the blessing I have for you. And when we're in the middle of the valley, we're going, God, what are you doing this to me for? I was real happy with what I was doing, and now you're putting me through pain. And God's saying, just be patient. I have a great plan for you. And we get there, and all of a sudden, all that pain that we went through is forgotten because of the blessings. Very much like the giving birth for the mother. You know, it's been said that if the mothers remembered everything about the pain of giving birth, they'd never have another child. And yet they take so much delight in that child that they forget the pain involved in, in that getting to that. And that's very much the way our life is with God. We go through trials and tribulations to get there, and God says, here's the reward for it. And ultimately, the great reward is when we go to heaven. And we'll forget everything about this world's pain and trials for the blessings that are there before us. But he's saying, trust him. Trust him. You know, the, the ones that were on the eastern, eastern side of the Jordan didn't trust him. Didn't trust him to go into the promised land. They stayed out in the wilderness in second best instead of going into the best. And that's where they wanted. And it had a consequence. They were always the first one to be conquered. Whenever Israel was attacked, they got hurt. They got attacked first. There was a consequence for being on the wrong side of the Jordan. And yet, they were happy to be there. Verse 22, even a heritage for Israel, his servant. <laughs> and then verse 23, who remembers us in our low estate? And verse 24, and who hath redeemed us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. You know, God remembers us where we're at. He remembered Israel when they were in their lowest in, the, in, the, in slavery. He remembered them even before that when Abraham would go off and do the wrong things and, and lie to the Pharaoh and say, this is, my, this is my sister and have his wife taken and put into the harem of Pharaoh. And yet God would remember them. You have Jacob as he was a manipulator of people going in and, and having to deal with Laban. And God says, I remember you. He remembers them in Egypt. He remembers them while they're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. In the book of Judges, every time they would go into sin and then they would finally call out to him, he would remember them. He does the same thing with us. He remembers us at our lowest points. And the sad thing is, so often we have to go through the low point just so that we'll turn to him. When we get to heaven, will we or will we not remember anything that is of great debate amongst theologians. I am drifting into the school of that, yes, we'll remember, but we'll see it from God's perspective and we'll know why. Now, there is a school that says, no, there's no way you could ever remember this world and have any peace and, and joy in heaven. I'm not sure I agree with that completely, but where will we be? I don't know. I don't know. Because there are those that say, well, how could you remember your family members that are in hell because they rejected Jesus Christ? Again, you know, if I fully understand why they're there and that they chose it, maybe I would understand it without having tears brought to my eyes for it. I don't know. There's no, there's no biblical answer to that. God says he'll dry the tears from our eyes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't remember. It just means that he'll give us the reason why. He was sent to hell, and, and he said, 
about putting water on his lips and stuff like that. Oh, oh the, the rich man and Lazarus, the, the story of rich man and Lazarus. He still had a memory. Oh, he definitely in hell, you'll remember. Okay, so you probably have, you might have one. It might be fair to assume you might have one. Right? Again, there's nothing scriptural that say yes or no. No. I, like I said, I'm coming in the school, the camp that says, we will remember, but because we understand it from God's perspective, we will know it won't bring tears to our eyes because we will see things more the way he did from the beginning to the end and know that what happened is what had to happen and it was a consequence of decisions. You know, there's no, there's no definitive answer on that. In hell, th that story definitely tells us they remember. They remember their opportunities and that's part of their torture in hell. They will remember every time they rejected Jesus Christ. They will remember every time that they made a choice against God and the conviction of that will tell, will tell them, you're here because you chose to be there. It doesn't say what Lazarus did, no. It's, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that we will remember anything in heaven so, about this world other than possibly our decision to turn to God. But there's also nothing in there to tell us that we won't <laughs> remember it. So it's one of those questions where we can't make a definitive statement one way or the other. And I've heard theologians will argue this back and forth, you know, no way could you be happy in heaven if you remembered this world. And the other one say, if you understood everything behind the decisions, you wouldn't. And I think it's probably, as with all dis discussions that have a one side or the other, it's probably in the center. There's going to be certain things God's going to let us remember and certain things he won't let us remember. People will tell you the most important thing they learn in seminary is there's one God and I'm not him. Okay, and we've got to be come to that conclusion. There's one God and I'm not him. I am not going to understand everything there is to know about God in this world. I don't believe we're going to understand everything there is to know about God in heaven because God is always going to be God. He's always going to be higher than we are and stronger than we are, and more powerful and more knowledgeable than we are, we're not going to know everything about God even in heaven because he is God, and we're created. The angels don't know everything there is to know about God. They know a lot more than we do because they get to see him, and they've known him a little bit longer than we have, but even they don't know everything there is to know because God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, he has all these great powers that he is everything. And his creation does not have that kind of power. Which is why we, when we talk about Satan, so many people think of Satan as God's. God created Satan and could dismiss him at any moment, unmake him, get rid of him completely. He uses Satan. He uses Satan to try his saints and show his saints where they're at and who God is. And he uses Satan. And when he's done with Satan and the end of this world, he's going to cast him into hell. And we've talked about this. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He's going to be an inmate in hell. And hell has no pleasurable time for anybody. It is basically solitary confinement where you're with your conscience saying, I am where I deserve to be. There's no comfort by saying, well, okay, there's millions of people down here with me. We're all going to be enjoying misery together. There's no comfort in that at all because it is not going to be a party in hell where everybody's celebrating together. There'll be no comfort in it. And Satan is going to be an inmate of hell. 
He's going to be punished just like everybody else. He's not trying to build his own kingdom. He's just trying to hurt God by taking his people away from him. And we need to keep that in mind. Satan is not the co-equal of God, and he's not the ruler of hell. God, God uses him in this world. All right, the last two verses, verse 25. Who gives food to all flesh, God provides sustenance for all of creation. Jesus said, look at the birds. They, don't, they neither gather nor reap, but God takes care of them. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't either spin nor toil, and yet they're arrayed greater than Solomon. God says he knows the hairs on our head, the number of birds there are. He says a sparrow doesn't fall without him knowing it. God cares about the simplest, smallest things. You know, this is what he's singing here. God provides. You know, all through the Psalms, all through these different places, he says, who provides the meal for the young lions? Who provides the meal for this group? What, you know, it's God. God gives the rain to the just and the unjust. He provides the food for the just and the unjust. And he withholds it when it's time to withhold it for punishment. And then the last one, oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven for his mercy endures for heaven forever. So he comes back to give thanks. Now, give thanks. And we talked about that this morning. We as Christians should be giving thanks for everything that God sends our way, including those things that we think are bad when we're going through them. Because I can tell you my experience is when I get to the other side of the problem, it always works out for good. I've seen everything so far in my life has worked out for good. And the few that I don't understand, I think you'll show me in heaven why it was for good. If I still cared at that point. But when you get those blessings for having endured and you get your rewards, it'll be, oh, thank you, God. You know, our goal today is to learn to thank him even when we don't think it's worth thanking him for. And if we start thanking him for everything, imagine how your life will change when you're being thankful for everything that comes your way because you know that God has promised it's going to be for good and you know that he is in charge and you know that Satan can't do anything to you without permission from God in the first place. You know, it's a very interesting thing. We are immortal until the time God says we're going home. Doesn't mean we won't feel pain. <laughs> okay? But we are immortal until God says, calls us home. And once he decides to call us home, we're going home no matter what we think. No matter what anybody else thinks. When he says it's time to come home, we're going home. But up until that point, we may suffer pain, we may suffer hardships, but we aren't going home until God says it's time to go home. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to go before us in, in all that we do. Help us to keep an eye on you and to just to learn to be thankful in all that we do. And we ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.